This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're available on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, and I'm in studio with Onelin Sinsi, Tracy Boomgard, as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Malawi's President Peter Mutarika to stand in the next fresh presidential polls as ordered by the Constitutional Court. Foreign students remain trapped in virus-hit city Wuhan in China. And the USA and Britain agreed to repatriate more than 300 million US dollars in funds stolen by General Sani Abachi. We'll also be having your business as well as sporting news a little bit later on in the hour. But right now, it's time for us to get an update with regards to the news headlines. Here is Onilin Sinsi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samara. Malawi's president, Peter Mutareka, has declared that he will stand in the next fresh presidential polls as ordered by the Constitutional Court, although he has advised his legal team to file an appeal against the judgment. Mutareka, in the State of the Nation address last night, described the nullification of the May 21, 2019 president elections as death of Malawi's democracy and an attempt to undermine people's will. George Mangor has more. In the case, first respondent, President Peter Mutarika, likewise the second respondent, Malawi Electoral Commission, were represented by Attorney General Kaleken Kapare. Kapare said he will discuss the next position with President Mutarika and the Malawi Electoral Commission commissioners. In the consequential orders, the Constitutional Court ruled that the 50% plus one vote system should be used in the fresh elections, which will be held in five months. Meanwhile, Malawi's former Vice President Saulus Chilima has demanded the immediate resignation of the head of the country's elections body, Jane Ansa. The first practitioner in the annulled May 2019 presidential election petition case urged the chairperson of the Electoral Commission and all her commissioners to resign following the court decision overturning President Peter Mutarika's election victory. Chilima also called on the international community to send election observers to ensure the credibility of the forthcoming elections. The court cited massive and widespread irregularities in the May 2019 election, giving orders that a rerun be held within 150 days. Spokesperson for Lesotho's Prime Minister, Ari Lebuhile Muyeye, has been arrested for aiding First Lady Ma Isaya Tabane to evade arrest. He is alleged to have assisted her to flee to South Africa. Noma Bolani has more. Tabane returned to the Mines and Kingdom on Tuesday and appeared in court yesterday where she was charged with murdering her husband Tom Tabane's estranged wife in 2017 during difficult divorce negotiations. The First Lady was released on bail yesterday after applying privately for bail at the High Court. She is expected to return to court in two weeks. Muyaya was recently appointed a Tom Tabani spin doctor. He quickly rose to political aspirations after being a political radio anchor that was known for being pro the ruling party ABC. 
Hundreds of people in Tunisia demonstrated in the center of the capital, Tunis, against a recent Middle East plan by United States President Donald Trump. Trump, on the 28th of January, unveiled a controversial plan for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but analysts say it is favorable to Israel. The protesters are also calling for the boycott of all American products. They say the plan has been firmly rejected by the Palestinians and the Arab League. Lastly, residents of an apartment building in southern India were left in shock after a mix of beer, brandy and rum started gushing out of their taps. The smelly brown liquid began flowing from kitchen taps in the block of flats in Kerala. Muse residents then contacted the authorities for help and discovered their water well had been contaminated by officials albeit accidentally. It emerged that 6,000 litres of confiscated alcohol had been buried nearby. The alcohol, which officials had pleaded is a pit in a pit after it was seized on court orders, had sipped through the soil and into the same well that supplied the water residents with drinking water. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinzi. SABC News independent and impartial from an african perspective starting off in malawi where president peter mutarika has declared that he will stand in the next fresh presidential polls as ordered by the constitutional court although he was advised uh, his legal team to file an appeal against the judgment mutarika in the state of the nation address last night described the nullification of the May 21st, 2019 presidential elections as death of Malawi's democracy and an attempt to undermine people's will. George Mahango reports from Blantyre. The May 21 presidential election result verdict by the Malawi High Court sitting at the Constitutional Court has seen opposition supporters, human rights activists commenting positively towards the verdict. The verdict was pronounced by lead judge Hile Potani. In view of the gravity of the state violations and breaches, it is our view that the conduct of the state and respondent in managing the state elections was very lacking, stated incompetence, for failing in multiple dimensions to follow clearly laid out legal processes for the conduct of such elections. The true meaning to be ascribed to Section 8 and Subsection 4 of the Constitution on the meaning of the term shall be elected by majority of electorates is that any candidate to be declared to be duly elected to the the office of president of the republic such person must secure a minimum of 50 percent plus one vote of the total valid vote cast during the presidential Kosa Silungwe, who is one of the lawyers for one of the petitioners Saulo Silima of the United Transformation Movement who has been reinstated as vice president of Malawi following the verdict said the issue of irregularities was key in their argument was always the qualitative argument to analysis of the evidence we had. The second one was the irregularity argument, and the third one was the fraud argument. So I am contented that uh, when the court asked us to answer the three constitutional questions, the court has basically agreed with our argument. Um, So I I am fully contented on that score. The Parliamentary and Presidential Elections Act um, defines irregularity in very simple terms. As you've heard from the judgment as it was being read out, irregularity simply means non-compliance with the Act. So you cannot have a public institution that operates as if it does not have an enabling legislation under which it must operate. So we simply 
picked out all the instances of non-compliance with the electoral law and based our case on, on that to persuade the court that look we cannot we cannot you know allow a presidential election result given all these uh, 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 irregularities in the case first respondent president peter mutariga likewise the second respondent malawi electoral commission were represented by attorney general kaleken kapare kapare said he will discuss the next position with President Mutariga and the Malawi Electoral Commission commissioners. Well, as, as good as all determinations go, it's uh, 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 one of those judgments. Uh, it's made findings. We'll have to examine those findings uh, with the clients and come up with a decision. Shock to me, nothing shocks a lawyer. There were supposed to be two possible rulings. One possibility has occurred. The other one hasn't. So we, we, we knew we accept, expected one of those two possibilities. In the consequential orders, the Constitutional Court ruled that the 50% plus one vote system should be used in the fresh elections, which will be held in five months. Modegai Musiska is the lead lawyer for Malay Congress Party's Lazarus Chakwira. Chakwira was the second petitioner in the case. When you have constitutional responsibilities, execute them as if they are personal. Do it correctly, follow the law, follow the Constitution. So the, the judgment basically says the commission failed in that respect. And as a result of the failure of the commissioners, here we are. We, we've all gone through a lot of um, uh, trials and tribulations and we're probably going to go through more. But it should be a lesson for those that are accorded the privilege to save the country, to do so faithfully and in compliance with whatever statutory provision allows them to hold the power to save the people. Travels in major cities such as Blantyre, Lilongwe and Mzuzu showed that there is calm. Business operations were back to normal. Some shop owners held the nullification of the May 21 presidential poll results. The Concord ordered that fresh polls should be held in 150 days to come. George Mahango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. As the United Kingdom and the United States of America evacuate their citizens from virus-hit Wuhan in China, many foreigners remain trapped in the city. Some South African students who have been on lockdown for over two weeks at Hubei University in the city at the epicenter of the virus are calling on the government to evacuate them. This comes as the death toll and number of new infections across the globe continues to rise. Sasha Naidu reports. South African students in Wuhan are now in a panic. It's been two weeks since they were under lockdown in an area where the virus first broke out. SABC News spoke via Skype to Kamohelo Taule, who has just graduated from the Hubei University in Wuhan. He says they're stuck in the city. We are currently on lockdown and we have been on lockdown for a little over two weeks now. And um, in a sense that we can't even leave our rooms. We spend 24 hours in our rooms with nothing to do. And so this is kind of scary because we feel like we're in prison with no escape. So literally the gates are closed, the, the streets are closed, everything is closed, even the shops, everything. So you can't go anywhere, you can't do anything. He says that food supplies are also running critically low. Like uh, now the whole city is using um, one supermarket. So you can just imagine because in Wuhan we have like 11 million people currently. So we're using one supermarket, so we are running out of food and water, and the school is trying its level best to provide us, but the food is expensive, as you can guess, because of this virus. 
So it's kind of hard because we, we are running out of supplies. Back home, Kamo's family is worried. His aunt, Namfundo Motabi, has called on the South African government to bring her nephew back home. Okay. These other countries, they are evacuating their students. What about them? What is the government doing about everything that is happening? Okay, the university is playing their part, trying to um, check them on a daily basis, uh, the, their temperatures and everything. But the government of South Africa, what are they doing? They are done with the studies. Why, the, why are they still there? They need to come back. Home and it's the, the sooner the better because we don't know how, how long is this virus going to take for them to, um, to get a cure or maybe um, stop the virus from spreading. So it's really difficult for us. The number of people in China now known to have died as a result of the coronavirus outbreak has risen to over 560. Over 70 people died from the virus on Wednesday, most of them in Hubei. There are over 24,000 confirmed cases of the coronavirus in China, with 25 nations confirming a total number of 191 cases. South Africa has no reported cases of the coronavirus. Sasha Naidu, Johannesburg. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. The Chinese Deputy Ambassador to Zimbabwe, Zhao Baogang, has given assurance that African students in China are safe and would be getting assistance to return home. The assurance comes following numerous complaints that the Chinese authorities are neglecting African students and only assisting their own nationals. Novel coronavirus broke out in China in early December, killing more than 600 and left more than 28,000 affected, leading to travel restrictions in the country. Samuel Muchema reports from Harare. African students trapped in the Chinese cities where the coronavirus has ravaged Wuhan city and killed more than 600 people are said to be safe. The deputy Chinese ambassador to Zimbabwe, Zhao Baohang, made the remarks in Harare on Thursday during a meeting with the Zimbabwe's health minister, Dr. Obedaya Moyo. This comes following reports that some Zimbabwean students, like any other African students in China, are having a difficult time as authorities are segregating against them. Following the coronavirus outbreak in December last year, there has been limited movement in several cities, and this has affected several students. Chinese Deputy Ambassador Zhao had this to say. I would like to give you a briefing on the conditions of Zimbabwean nationals and Zimbabwean students in China. They are safe and sound and well uh, taken good care of. Just this morning, I had a telephone conversation with the Minister Councillor of Zimbabwe in Zimbabwe uh, in China, uh, in Zimbabwean Embassy in China, and I was briefed that uh, uh, he hasn't received any reports or any uh, complaints for Zimbabwean 
nationals and Zimbabwean students in China. And we uh, have also have hotlines and uh, that those uh, people will, through the hotlines, uh, just handle and deal with the concerns of Zimbabwean nationals and students in China. The deputy ambassador assured Zimbabwean parents whose children are staying in China that the host nation was going to assist as much as possible during this era. The situation is under control, Zhao said. I would like to reiterate that the situation is under control. The outbreak broke out last December. Since then, the General Secretary of Chinese Communist Party and President Xi Jinping and also Premier Li Keqiang all go to the front line and give orders, give instructions and mobilize the different departments of the ministries and also the different departments and the governments at different at all the levels in China. They are all working all the day, seven days, 24 hours to fight against the virus. Now in the epic center of the virus of the outbreak in Wuhan and several hospitals are being uh, are under construction. Now two have been uh, completed within just around 10 days and more than 2,400 beds are added to the facilities. More than 6,000 Chinese doctors and nurses and medical workers are deployed in Wuhan. At least 28,000 people, mainly Chinese, have been confirmed to have tested positive to the coronavirus. 1,200 have been cured and discharged from hospitals and 600 have died. As such, the Chinese government has issued traveling restrictions to its nationals coming to Zimbabwe. Meanwhile, the deputy ambassador warned that moving the Zimbabwean students back home would be placing the whole nation at risk. Certainly, some students want to move and want to go back home. I believe that uh, it is uh, dangerous. And also the scientists also believe it is dangerous. So when you go, uh, if they come back to Zimbabwe, they have to uh, take the train, take the bus or take the plane and uh, it is very dangerous because in a very closed space. Uh, I'll give you one example. Just a few weeks ago, Japanese government evacuated their nationals from Wuhan city, the cap uh, epic center of the disease. And uh, hundreds of them arrived in Japan, but the infection has been greatly increased. So if they don't move, and there would be less infections. But if they move in group, and there would be more infections. The Zimbabwean government has reiterated that the country is prepared to deal with the coronavirus in the event some people are infected in the country. Currently, a task force of Zimbabwean and Chinese experts has been established with local medical experts benefiting a lot. Meanwhile, the Chinese authorities in Zimbabwe have advised people coming from China to exercise self-quarantine periods of between 14 to 21 days. Zimbabwe Health Minister Dr. Obedaya Moyo had this to say. I was also very happy to hear from the minister about one issue which has been worrying us quite a lot. That is the issue regarding our students in China. The minister has clearly pointed out that the Chinese government is looking after all our students in China. 
They're making sure that they are good and sound wherever they are. They've got all the details of Zimbabwean students and they're working with our embassy in Beijing on this particular aspect. So this is very, very encouraging. So all Zimbabwean parents who've got their children at college, any Zimbabweans who've got their relatives in China, this is the guarantee that we've gotten from the Chinese government today. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchema. The United States and the British Dependency of Jersey have agreed with Nigeria to repatriate more than 300 million U.S. dollars in funds stolen by former military ruler General Sani Abacha. Abacha ruled Nigeria, Africa's biggest oil producer, from 1993 until his death in 1998. Corruption watchdog Transparency International alleges he stole as much as $5 billion of public money during that time, and Nigeria has been fighting for years to recover the money. Abacha's laundering operation is alleged to have extended to the United States and European jurisdictions such as Britain, France and Germany. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Kolawole Oluwadare, the Deputy Director of Nigeria's Socioeconomic Rights and Accountability Project. He says although the latest agreement is good on paper, there's no greater transparency on how to repatriate funds will benefit ordinary citizens. Without going into the details of the, the agreement, it, it appears to be a good thing on the face of it. But the fact that we would have to make concessions about money's return, our money's return to us to the spent, speaks volumes about what the international community can see in Nigeria anti-corruption fight. But be that as it may, if the details of the agreement are followed better than the Nigerian government, it would, it would be a good thing for the people of Nigeria. But the constant problem we've always, we always had with successive governments, including the government from which that money is left again in the first place, is about transparency and accountability, access to information, the media being accountable to the people. So it's not enough that these funds are coming in and that the agreement of how it is spent. What are the things built in the process to make sure that the people are carried along in executing those projects and spending those monies to make sure that they are not reduced. Now, we're talking about the government. We set up as being the first one of accountability and transparency over the years. And one of the things we always put down to all government to account is to make the citizens know that how much money has come in, how much is budgeted, how much is extended by time, and how much we have left. So what are the mechanisms that, that is built into this agreement that would make local civil society organizations and general citizens to be able to monitor and track the spending of those funds? I believe that is what is most important. Now, talking about accountability and uh, transparency, according to the Nigerian Attorney General Abubakar Malami, the returned money will be administered by the Nigeria Sovereign Investment Authority and will be independently audited. How do you respond to this? Again, it looks good on paper and it looks good in theory. But uh, it would be asked to, to infer what would happen to those funds and how it is going to be spent until it is actually spent. But I can speak from the advantage of someone that has been at the forefront of accountability and transparency with this particular administration to say that this is a promise we intend to hold them responsible for. Now, we use a lot of freedom of information requests a lot. And I'm yet to see this government respond positively to freedom of formation. So it is important. If the money is going to the sovereign wealth fund now, how do we follow up to make sure that this money is well spent? So in the coming months, you can be sure that Serap is going to request for information into how these funds are administered. And I hope, and I surely hope, that I will get a positive response by then. But going by what this government has done over the years, 
in response to our request for information. I, I really don't see that happening. Companies linked to the Abacha family have gone to court to prevent repatriation, alleging infringement of their rights to a fair trial. Uh, what do you say to this? And frankly, the money belongs to Nigeria. They are protesting, judicial processes are supposed that this money belongs to Nigeria. So I believe that is at no moment. What is most important to me is how these funds are used. And that was Kolawole Oluwadari, the Deputy Director of Nigeria's Socio-Economic Rights and Accountability Project, talking to Kumbelo Munjelele. He was on the line from Lagos in Nigeria. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netle to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says his government wants to make sure that young people transition from learning to earning at a much faster rate. He was speaking at a joint media briefing with German councillor Angela Merkel, who is on an official visit to the union buildings in Pretoria. President Ramaphosa says part of the discussions with the chancellor focused on how they can work together to strengthen technical and vocational education in South Africa. Tantla Mashangu reports. President Cyril Ramaphosa hosted the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who's on an official visit at the union buildings in Pretoria. South Africa and Germany's strategic relationship is substantiated by 72 bilateral agreements between the two nations, providing a legal framework for corporations in several areas. These relations are further enhanced through a binational commission spanning foreign and security policy, migration and humanitarian assistance, amongst others. President Ramaphosa says their discussions addressed a number of bilateral issues and of particular importance was the signing of a joint initiative on the promotion of vocational training. I have made addressing the high rate of youth unemployment in our country a foremost priority of our administration. We have begun to implement the presidential youth employment intervention to address this challenge of youth unemployment, which includes five priority actions to over the next five years that will significantly reduce the rate of uh, youth who are unemployed. An important part of this intervention is to provide young people with the skills that companies that operate in our country require and to better align the skills development system 
with the demands of the economy as well. The partnership was further strengthened through the engagement between President Ramaphosa and Chancellor Merkel on, among other issues, cooperation between South Africa and Germany in the United Nations Security Council, where South Africa currently serves as a non-permanent member. President Ramaphosa says the two countries are committed to advocating for world peace and security, strengthening and reform of multilateral institutions, and responding to climate change. He says they also exchanged proposals on the expansion of mutually beneficial trade and investment. Our relationship has a strong economic focus as well. Bilateral trade between our two countries is growing. Our trade balance is narrowing and we benefit from the presence of some 600 German companies in South Africa. We agreed that there is a need for German businesses to deepen their presence in South Africa and to expand their operations and that we should cooperate to even greater levels of German investment in South Africa. South Africa is Germany's largest trading partner in Africa, while Germany is the third largest source of overseas visitors to South Africa. President Ramaphosa and Chancellor Merkel also co-chaired the South Africa-Germany Business Roundtable, accompanied by their respective ministers and business delegations. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Tlantla Mahlangu in Johannesburg. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. And now it's time for your latest news headlines. Here's Ole Lensinsi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Malawi's President Peter Mutarika has declared that he will stand in the next fresh presidential polls. Hundreds of people in Tunisia demonstrated in the center of the capital against a recent Middle East plan by United States President Donald Trump. And the Chinese deputy ambassador to Zimbabwe has given assurance that African students in China are safe and would be getting assistance to return home. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Today marks International Day of Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation. Annually observed on the 6th of February, the day seeks to raise awareness on FGM as one of society's harmful practices and call for its total elimination. Globally, it's estimated that some 200 million girls and women alive today have undergone some form of FGM. For more on the effects of FGM, here's Justin Coulson, Deputy Regional Director of the United Nations Population Fund, East and Southern Africa Office. 
first and foremost, we have to understand that it's a harmful practice and that it violates the rights of women and girls. But what it actually means is it's when either all or some of the female genital area is cut away for cultural non-medical reasons, which is very harmful to the girl in many ways. So despite the fact that every year we have the International Day of Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation and we have ongoing work, both as UNFPA and other partners fighting against FGM, we continue to see many incidences of FGM across the continent. I think it's important to recognize that we have seen progress. You know, so for example, in Ethiopia, we have 25% fewer 15 to 19-year-old girls now experiencing FGM. In Kenya, we've had a 72% drop in one age bracket of FGM. So that's, you know, that's a, a, a huge progress. But also, there are still many, particularly older members of communities, where they feel that FGM is intrinsically connected to their cultural identity. And so with those sorts of communities, we do a lot of work to engage with them on how harmful this practice can be for um, girls and young women, and also to help work with them to develop new coming-of-age or initiation rights you know, that are less harmful, but also still allow the community to mark that celebratory nature of you know, a girl coming into, into young womanhood. Let's talk about some of the negative impacts faced by girls and women who have undergone this harmful practice. And I think to talk about those harmful practices, we also need to recognize that for the majority of girls who experience this practice, they're very often held down forcibly. They are cut with a blunt, unclean blade without any form of anesthetic. I mean, it's an extremely brutal, painful, traumatic experience. So immediately following that, You can see infection, you can see hemorrhaging, you can see um, permanent damage to maybe um, urinary function or other aspects of reproductive health. And sometimes um, that impact can be so serious that the girl can die. But then there are also longer-term impacts. So when a girl has been cut, when she then reaches an age where she either wants to initiate um, sexual relationships or she gets pregnant, we see a lot of problems with related to infection or other challenges with sexual intercourse. We see challenges um, in terms of complications during childbirth. So we see far greater complications during childbirth in those women who've experienced FTM than those who have not. Um, in recent research, we've seen that you know in countries that still have very high incidence of FTM, we also see much higher rates of maternal death and maternal complications as well. Now, this year's theme of commemoration is Unleashing Youth Power, One Decade of Accelerating Actions for Zero Female Genital Mutilation. In simple terms, what does this theme speak to? So, I mean, I think the acceleration comes from the fact that we're very aware that 2030 is the end of the Sustainable Development Goal period. And as you know, there were many commitments made in 2016. Um, As UNFPA, we have a particular commitment to see, um, you know, zero harmful practices of which FGM is won by 2030 in the countries where we work. And so the acceleration is really looking at how can we build on some of those positive experiences and progress that we've made in terms of eliminating FGM. How can we learn from those experiences? How can we bring countries together to learn from one another? How do we take the champions to help us move forward far more quickly than we are at the moment? But I think the harnessing of of youth power is particularly important. So, you know, we have a huge youth population across Africa, and it's recognized both at national level, at, at the African Union level, by key partners working in the continent, 
that young people are very much the future of Africa and they're defining the future of Africa now, both in terms of you know, their social and economic engagement. So similarly with FGM, it's not just about talking to the community elders. It's engaging with girls and boys about the future communities that they want to live in. They're the wives, the mothers, the husbands, the brothers of the future and very much the future custodians of their communities. If we get them to stand up now and speak out against FGM and understand the reason why it's harmful and to create more positive approaches to um, bringing young girls into the community as young women, you know, that process of, of um, rights of moving into adulthood, we really feel that is another way in terms of addressing the need to eliminate the practice. Thank you so much for giving us detailed responses. Is there anything perhaps that you would like to add as a parting shot? I think just to say that, you know, we look to communities for change. As much as organizations like the United Nations can help, the reality is this change isn't going to happen without communities and particularly individuals standing up against the practice. And so we as UNFPA and other partners are ready to support those individuals who really want to champion the elimination of FGM. And that was Justin Coulson, the Deputy Regional Director of the United Nations Population Fund East and Southern Africa office on the line talking to Jane Robotata. Airlines, airports and other businesses involved in the UK's aviation industry have published plans this week that they claim will allow them to reduce their carbon dioxide emissions to zero by the year 2050. Aviation is growing rapidly around the world as the number of people who can afford to fly increases dramatically. In the UK, passenger numbers are expected to rise by 70% over the next three decades. But according to industry grouping the Sustainable Aviation Coalition, uh, emissions can still be cut using a combination of new technology, innovative fuels and so-called market-based measures, such as carbon offsets. The BBC's business correspondent, Theo Leggett, reports. It's a typically busy day at London's Heathrow Airport. Dozens of aircraft are moving out onto the taxiways, the air shimmering in the heat produced by the exhaust from their engines. The aviation sector is in good health around the world and passenger numbers are growing rapidly. But there are clouds on the horizon. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. A new wave of climate activism, with the teenager Greta Thunberg at its head, is focusing attention as never before on industries that pollute. All you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? The risk for aviation is that more passengers means more planes and ultimately more pollution. So now the industry in the UK has promised to reduce its emissions to zero over the next 30 years. Matthew Gorman is a council member for Sustainable Aviation. We think that aviation brings huge benefits. Those are economic, but they're also uh, social, connecting friends and family around the world, letting people explore the world. People value aviation, we know that. But it's equally clear we face some really pressing challenges on climate. And what we're saying here is we want to do both of those things, deliver the benefits, but we have to get to net zero. We can't shy away from that. And what we're setting out today is a plan to do that through cleaner aircraft and engines, through sustainable fuels and through offsetting. There's no question aircraft design has a role to play here. So, for example, I'm standing on the tarmac at Heathrow Airport and I'm walking past an Airbus A321neo. The NEO stands for New Engine Option, and the engines on this aircraft 
a state of the art. They're much more efficient than those fitted to previous models. And if you look along the end of the wing, there's a neat little shark's fin shape. And that aerodynamic tweak alone saves a lot of fuel, about 5% compared to previous designs. All told, this aircraft will use a fifth less fuel than the model that came before it. Using less fuel is just part of the picture, however. People within the industry say they're also looking at changing the type of fuel they use. British Airways, for example, is teaming up with the oil giant Shell and the US renewables firm Velocis. Together, they're planning to build a new refinery in the northeast of England, which will turn commercial waste into biofuels. Alex Cruz is BA's chief executive. Biofuels is uh, an initiative that we can pursue right now. It's there, the technology exists, and we've decided that we have to commit to something that would provide results as quickly as possible. It won't be the only one. We're working on other things, and I believe the industry will generate other lines of work, and we will get involved in those lines of work. But biofuels are expensive. Isn't that a problem? Biofuels are expensive today because they come in small quantities, like anything else. But we do believe that once the plant is up and running, producing biofuels, the prices will be comparable to those prices that we're paying today. But all of this can only reduce the amount of carbon produced. However efficient they are, airliners still need to burn fuel and still produce carbon dioxide. In order to get to zero, a significant proportion of the cuts being promised will have to come from elsewhere, through so-called market-based measures. These include emissions trading and offsetting schemes, as Sustainable Aviation's Matthew Gorman explains. We're talking about investment in what people call natural climate solutions, forestry, peatland, things that can remove carbon from the atmosphere. And we're also talking about investing in uh, reductions that other sectors can make, renewable energy and other forms of reduction. We are committed to offsetting projects that are robust and meet high quality standards. The UN set up a new scheme to do that, which we're confident will get us on the road to net zero. But the value of offsetting is hotly debated. Environmental campaigners see it as simple greenwash, an excuse to continue with business as usual. Muna Suleiman is from Friends of the Earth. The plan by sustainable aviation to hit net zero by 2050 seems simply far-fetched. I mean, we're in a climate crisis. That means we need action now. The industry can't rely on things like biofuel, for instance, which the government's own advisors have said can be highly polluting. It also can't look to carbon offsetting as a way to keep things business as usual. We need to focus on the things that we know work. That means cancelling airport expansion, taxing the frequent flyers and investing in our public transport. But whether or not their goals are realistic, people within the aviation industry feel they have to make a big statement of intent or face the very real prospect of having their wings clipped by regulators. And that report was by the BBC's Theo Liggett. The time is now 17.42. Right after this, we're going to be heading over to the Economics Desk, where Tracy Boomgaard is standing by to let us know what is happening in the latest economics news. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive 
to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Now it's time for your economics news. Here's Tracy Boomgard. Thank you. A report from the Overseas Development Institute shows British companies have made bigger profits investing in Africa than in any other region of the world. The ODI is urging companies to look for profits on the continent rather than seeing it as a place to do charitable work. The ODI says Africa offers world-beating returns on investment. The report looks at investment by British firms in Ghana, Kenya, Nigeria and South Africa. In 2019, the rate of return on all inward foreign direct investment in developing African countries was 6.5%, higher than the rates in developing Latin America and the Caribbean at 6.2%, and also higher than the 6% return in developed economies. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has emphasized the importance of technical and vocational training in South Africa. He was speaking during a media briefing alongside German Chancellor Angela Merkel at the Union Buildings in Pretoria. The two leaders aim to strengthen ties between both countries and are due to discuss issues of trade, migration and international matters. Ramaphosa says South Africa is seeking to learn from Germany's experiences on skills development. Part of our discussions with the Chancellor today focus on how we can work together to strengthen technical and vocational education in South Africa. We know that Germany has one of the most admired and successful training systems in the world and we look forward to finding ways for us to learn from each other's experiences and build a world-class skills development system for young people in our country. Minister in the Presidency Jackson Mtembu says that South Africa will be highlighting the importance of infrastructure development at the African Union Summit taking place in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia later this week. 
South Africa has been at the helm of the AU's Presidential Infrastructure Champion Initiative, which is aimed at promoting priority development projects. Mtembu says as incoming AU Chair President Cyril Ramaphosa will be ramping up the need for infrastructure as the lifeblood to continental development and integration. We are in charge of over 15 or so corridors throughout the length and breadth of Africa, from Algeria, Namibia, uh, you name them, Niger, uh, Egypt, uh, all these corridors that are meant also to ensure that we don't only have the, <coughs> the <coughs> African trade area, but also we have roads that can lead people to the African trade area. So that's what we are championing. South Africa's labor unions say the management at the University of South Africa is playing hard and seek. This as a staff strike at the institution enters day 10 without a resolution. The UNISA employees have been on strike since last week demanding a salary increase. They are demanding an 8% wage increase, but the university is offering 6.3%. Tulo Oil Kenya plans to cut a third of its staff in a bid to save on administrative costs. In an internal memo, the company said it had to review and assess its financial performance and business operations. The job cuts will affect a third of the company's workers across all levels. Tulo has pushed back its full-year results to March 12th, when further details of its restructuring are expected. The U.S. dollar is trading at 361.45 Nigerian Naira, 10.74 Botswana Pula, at 99.27 Kenyan Shilling and at 14.51 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.24 Brazilian Hale, 62.88 Russian Ruble, 71.09 Indian Rupee, 6.98 Chinese Yuan and at 14.76 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,562 and platinum at $974 per ounce, while Brent crude oil is at $55.60 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And now here's Neto Chimani with your latest sport. Thank you, Samara. A very good afternoon, sport fans. Starting off with football news. South African Football Association SAFA President Danny Jordan has confirmed that they are working towards implementing VAR, video assistant referees in the country. The much-debated technology has seen a mixed reaction in the footballing world after it was first written into the laws of the game in 2018 by the International Football Association Board. Since then, 36 domestic leagues across the world, 11 continental competitions and four international tournaments have implemented VAR, as well as the goal line technology. 
However, at present, Morocco is the only African country using VAR and goal line technology. Jordan, along with SAFA members and 120 referees, gathered at an important workshop last week to discuss VAR and the introduction of it into South African football. Also in attendance was FIFA Head of Referees, Massimo Busaka, and CAF Referees Committee President, Suleiman Hassan Waberi. In cricket news, Proteus spinner Tabraiz Shamsi is expecting a strong backlash from England when the second one-day international is played out in Durban tomorrow. South Africa won the opening game of the three-match series by seven wickets in Cape Town on Tuesday, with the 29-year-old playing a key role thanks to a telling bowling display in which he must fight the touring batsman to claim three for 38. But Shamsi says that game is now history and he feels that the 2019 World Cup winners will be desperate to bounce back at Kingsmead. Yeah, of course, you know, they're the world champions. They've got unbelievable players in their squad. Uh, a lot of uh, chat has been about them resting players. Uh, we've also rested players and it doesn't really matter. Ultimately, it's South Africa against England and they are the world champions. And the, the, if you look at their batting lineup, I'm a bowler, I look at the batting lineup, it's... it's, it's class you know like there's guys up to like number 10 11 they can bat so it's it's it's, you play against the best team in the world and that's quite exciting um you know to be able to produce what we did in cape town and it's even nicer that we get another opportunity to do something like that again with south africa also one nil up in the series tomorrow does present them with a chance to close out the series and allow them a chance to be more relaxed heading into the match three, which is the famous pink ODI at the Imperial Wanderers in Johannesburg on Sunday. Shamsi says they try and win every game and expects another wholehearted display by the Proteus in match two. Yeah, of course, that's the aim, you know, every time you step onto the field, we want to win the game. And tomorrow's going to be no different, you know, like you've seen, it's the day before the game, but the guys are still out there training. So the hunger is there, which has always been there. It's not, it's not to say that it wasn't there before. Um, so yeah, we're really excited. Of course, we'd like to close out the series, but I'm sure England will be coming hard as well to, to bounce back. On to Olympics news. Tokyo Olympics organizers have set up a task force to coordinate with public health authorities on how to respond to the growing coronavirus epidemic. Tokyo 2020 CEO Toshiro chaired the newly created novel coronavirus countermeasures task force, which held its first meeting on February the 4th. A second briefing would be held as early as tomorrow. International Paralympic Committee spokesman Craig Spence, who attended the briefing today, said the virus spread had minimal impact on the Games' preparations so far, and the Games will be held as planned. As you would expect, coronavirus was discussed during this project review. The outbreak so far has had minimal impact on the Games' preparations for both the IPC and Tokyo 2020. And we are going about our plans as expected with athlete health and well-being remaining our top priority. And finally in tennis news. 
South Africa will host the ITF, CAT, African Junior 18 and Underclosed Championships for both boys and girls at the Tax Tennis University of Pretoria from the 10th to the 16th of February. The event will comprise of individual competition from the 10th to the 14th of February, followed by a team's competition on the 15th and 16th of February. The tournament has attracted 16 nations, namely Algeria, Benin, Botswana, Burundi, Cameroon, Ivory Coast, Egypt, Kenya, Madagascar, Morocco, Mauritius, Mozambique, Namibia, Tunisia, Zimbabwe, and hosts South Africa. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and ETO Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Samora Magesi, producer Leb Musweo, technical producer uh, Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you so much for listening. Should you want to get in contact with us, do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or follow us on Twitter at channelafrica1. 